the story of two dental hygienists from opposite sides of the world who became friends because they realized their professional lives were so in sync. One in Australia and one in America, both exuding their high passion for high-level patient care, both pushing back on legacy dentistry. If you are ready to revolutionize the practice of dental hygiene through science and innovation, join us as we are Disrupting Dentistry. All right, everybody. We're here and welcome back for part two. We finally got our junk together, but I'll say that nicely, um, between schedules, children terrorizing me, and uh, life we're finally here so if you haven't listened to part one it's about standard of care and then this is part two to that standard of care so um hi hope everyone's having a good end to 2023 and hopefully you're listening to this in 2023 and we got our shit together enough to actually get this out as well but maybe it's early 2024 (laughs) it's a 50 50 shot here to be honest so (laughs) yeah so but but before we dive in, just a quick thank you to everybody. We have, uh, you know, not as big, been, oh, wow, have not been as consistent as we would have liked to have been to provide you with what we promised you. So thank you for sticking it out and being patient with us. We really appreciate every single one of you. Yeah, no, we appreciate it. Thank you so much. So where we left you in part one of the episode, we talked about the importance of doing the perio chart and all of the stuff you need in that perio chart. And then where we wanted to, and we talked about diagnosis and using grading. And then we want to talk about those next steps about documenting it and the treatment plan. So let's start with documenting it. And what's really, really important is, is that every time you have notes is that you write down the diagnosis. And sometimes you might, now, with a perio diagnosis, the gray, the staging will not retrogress. So if someone is a stage three, they'll never become a stage two unless you made a mistake and you're fixing the diagnosis. But otherwise, they won't retrogress because we take into factors the complexities that's there. But the grading can change. Remember, the grading can change. It can retrogress if we have resolution of areas or someone stops smoking or things like that. So... Always, but always make sure that diagnosis is there each time you're seeing the patient and be reviewing the diagnosis because they could be getting worse, unfortunately. You know, we've got non-compliant patients who don't turn up for their appointments, you know, who we schedule and we see eight months after their eight-week review was meant to happen. (laughs) You know, things happen. We all have those patients. None of us have the perfect patient. And as much as we can sometimes do everything right, it doesn't mean the patient's going to comply or is ready for treatment yet. Absolutely. So that's such a great point that you make with the uh, staging, because I feel like, especially here in the U.S., it's still something that's not widely adopted. And, um, you know, people will think that as someone moves through their periodontal treatment, when we go from active disease to supportive, when we see health, obviously, or, or see that we've put this disease in remission and we have uh, gingival health again, they might want to just go in and change that, that periodontal staging. So that's such a great point. I don't think that that's something that's as widely known or understood. Yeah. And I think, um, I'm going to be disrupting now. It's not a new classification system. It was 2017 that it was unveiled. It's nearly 
2024 or maybe you're listening in 2024, it's time to use it. The time for saying the new classification system is over. When it's been more than five years and you haven't adopted it yet, it's time to say uh, it's time. (laughs) You know, now laminate the sheets and put them up in your surgery or do something like that. It's a really easy system when you get your head around it and you get and you kind of embrace that you're going to change. I've actually been using it since the unveiling. I was really lucky. I got to go to Amsterdam and I was there for the five-hour unveiling and I started using it a week later because I was like, let's go. But I understand that's not as easy for everybody else. There's lots of resources. There's been lots of resources. It's really, it's time to go. And now, you know, if you're not using it five years later, you have to ask why. A hundred percent. And I couldn't agree more. Like every time I hear someone call it new, I'm like, really people? It's yeah. not new anymore. It's like it's really... seeing, uh, the five-year-old, we're still keeping, you know, dressed as a newborn and not changing things. It's time. <laughs> it's yeah. time to here's my, time here's my newborn baby. It's time to get rid of that walking and talking. And it's time to do this. <laughs> yeah. It's a, it ain't a newborn yeah. anymore. It's a full-fledged, yeah. ready-to-go-to-school child. <laughs> Absolutely. Absolutely. And, and you might need to be prepared because it it could be changing and then it'd be new again. And you still need, did not even adopt this part. But, um, something that I have heard a few times, uh, in the United States is that some of the dental insurance companies, if you're submitting periodontal codes for uh, non-surgical periodontal therapy, 4341 or 4342, if you don't have a staging grade, like they're going to come back and ask you for that. And if yeah. you don't have one, you're going to get declined. So you need to really start doing this uh, for your operations and your practice. And also just, you know, the liability of it as well to cover yourself. Like yeah. how do you have a benchmark to even see how you've progressed if you don't have that diagnostic starting point? So, And also like I think in Australia would have the same problem that if you were going to Um, If anything had happened and you were going to our regulatory board to be reviewed and you're looking at your notes and stuff like that and you're not using a classification system that's five years old, I think there would be questions. You know, have you been doing CPD? Because that's part of our registration in Australia that we keep up with our continuing education. And there would definitely have to be questions you ask, like, have you been doing continuing education? Because how come you're not using this five-year-old classification system? So, you know, hopefully you're never at the board. But if you are, you want to have good notes, which we're going to talk about. And we want to have comprehensive information and correct diagnoses. And along with that diagnosis, so you should have the stage you should have the grade, then it should be noted whether it's localized or generalized. So if it's less than 30% of teeth affected, then it's localized. And if it's more than 30 teeth, then it's generalized. Though I was laughing with one of my friends who's a specialist periodontist the other day, and I said to them, but how do you have localized stage four like that doesn't exist? Because you have to have five teeth or more missing. Or, you know, like major complexities, like less than 20 teeth remaining or like collapse of bites on like... You cannot have localized stage four perio. You can only have generalized. So, but you need to, you do need to actually write that down. That's part of the specification. And then you should also add in a prognosis. And this is something I find a lot of people don't do is write their prognosis in their notes. But you, now there's so many different types of prognosis classification systems out there. The university I'm studying at uses Quok and Catton and it sucks ass 
it's like the worst most complicated one and every time I have to use it for a clinical case I want to cry but for there are much easier ones and there'll be things like you know there's a doubtful or a poor or there's you know a secure or um, might say hopeless it just depends but what you should do as a practice is is decide which classification of prognosis you're going to use as a practice so that you're using this you're communicating in the same way with each other and then if it's ever asked you can say this is the the you know the reference to the classification system we used is this so then you know that can always be double checked as well but you know, a patient should understand their prognosis. And so you should be communicating the prognosis to a patient and then documenting that. So a patient should understand if a tooth has a hopeless prognosis or if their mouth has a hopeless prognosis. Now, it's really different how I write prognosis. Sometimes I will write, you know, a secure prognosis for the whole mouth. Sometimes I might write, and I'm going to use different numbers than to America here, but like one seven, so seven, like, you know, the seven molar, I might write hopeless prognosis and then for the central I might write secure. Then I might write, you know, um, doubtful for another tooth. So I sometimes might have six, you know, six teeth individually having things and then I might just write remaining teeth this. It's going to be different for every patient but it's important that we're aware of what we think the prognosis is, what we think we can achieve and also the patient is aware and then that's documented appropriately. Yes. Yes. That's a hundred percent too, because, um, a lot of times we, what I notice for practitioners is that they're afraid to really verbalize or, or share what they're identifying in fear of rejection from the patient, or we don't even have these conversations with them because we think that they're like, we've already opted them out of care. So it's so important for them to understand the long-term prognosis of their oral health and then the impacts that that's going to have. What could happen if they choose to do nothing? Yeah. What can occur if they aren't compliant with their home care so that we can encourage them to make these behavioral modification changes in their self-care routine so that they could be healthier at the end of the day. So that prognosis has such a big impact and it could be that one thing that you communicate to the patient that then really lands on them so they understand the importance of this. And it's not just you standing there, I'm going to age myself, saying that, you know, the Charlie Brown teacher going, wah, 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 that they actually understand what's going on and there's a consequence to the yeah. choices that they're going to be making. A hundred percent. Like a patient shouldn't just get given a diagnosis. Like you've got stage four perio and then not understand that some of those teeth could be terminal. Like we're not going to save them. You know, they need to know what the, exactly like you worded it, Melissa, what those consequences can be if we're not compliant. And even if we are compliant, that, you know, even when we do the right thing, setting up the expectations that some teeth might have a hopeless prognosis and we may not be able to save them. So they're not shocked when that comes along and then blames you thinking, I got the perio treatment with you and was it not a golden wand that you waved around and now I'm prepared? <laughs> you know, like we have to kind of, really make sure we're setting the appropriate expectations of what care can deliver. And if you don't understand the prognosis of your teeth, you can't understand what, what can actually be possible either. Right, right. And then you're able to, with Tabitha and I both having a history in, in uh, periodontal specialties, you're able to say as the hygienist, like, hey, you know what? This is the first place we start with our non-surgical care. 
I'm going to do everything in my power to get this under control for you. But there is a possibility that some of these areas are not going to respond well. Yeah. And then our next step would be to have look at surgical interventions with the doctor. So what's amazing about that, and, and Tab, you say this all the time that like, you'd like to take all the credit, you know, and you, yes, you're doing the decontamination. So it's, it's a big part of your skill set, your instrumentation and how you set the patient up for success. But it's really 80% of what the patient's going to be doing on a routine basis to manage that biofilm and keep it from, you know, keep the environment so that they can heal and, and, and respond well. But man, when you under deliver it like that and you let them know that there's a good possibility that they're still going to need surgery and then you reavow and they don't, you are like the freaking rock star of their life. And they think that you're like the most amazing thing ever. That's so rewarding as a clinician to throw the kitchen sink at something and and be doubtful in yourself of how it's going to respond. And then when you get a positive response, it's incredible. It's so rewarding. Yeah, no, I hundred percent agree with that. And like, like you said, if we're warning them that they may need surgery and then they don't, you just come off as the good guy. But if you don't tell them and then you say treatment failed and you need surgery, they hate you. <laughs> You're an asshole. Yeah. Yes. So you know, setting yourself up for success as well. This is about setting you as a clinician up for successful communication, successful outcomes with that patient and communication. That's just as important as the clinical side of things. Yes, totally. Because then even if it, you know, even if you forewarn them and say, Hey, we're going to do this, we're going to work really hard together and we're going to reevaluate and see where we come, where we land. And if it still isn't great and they do need surgery anyway, there's still a bond that you built with that patient because the two of you tried together, you know, and, and there's like, okay, so maybe this wasn't successful, but let's look at how, you know, in the upper right quadrant, we achieved remission. Uh, but the lower left quadrant now needs surgery where potentially the whole mouth needed surgery. So you're still, you know, you still have an opportunity to do great work and build that bond with your patient and change their lives because now they're invested. Because even if you don't have a hundred percent case success from a non-surgical perspective, but you got somebody to buy into taking better care of themselves, that's, that's huge. That's yeah. in, a positive impact on their life. And then they will, there's a butterfly effect to that. They could habit stack off of that one habit that you helped them build and have better habits in other aspects of their life. So the the reach you have is so big. A hundred percent. So along with writing your diagnosis, your prognosis, you then should write down what you explained to the patient. So like my notes will write dental health education given diagnosis explained and then I will also write usually in there explain the difference between a dental hygienist and a periodontist if it's appropriate you know for a stage one peri I'm not that concerned but if we if we're going to treat something of the higher ends the patient should know that there is an option of seeing that periodontist what the the limitations of my treatment are and that they're consenting to the treatment you know a patient isn't really consenting if they don't know there's other options they're not really consenting if they don't understand the full aspects of everything so I'll write some notes in there that I'll explain that they could go to the perio that they've opted to have treatment with me and what my limitations are and then I then it's really important to document what your next steps are going to be what are you expecting now it shouldn't say nv dash you know for next visit um just the clean like, or just, you know, 
NV dash eight weeks or NV dash three months, it should then be written in there that you are going to do a debridement or you're going to do a periochart, you're going to give OHI, all of those things. And then especially in your notes, I hate seeing OHI given. <laughs> what, did you, what did you tell them? Because this is actually a really important aspect of your appointment. And it, again, if the patient comes back and argues what they told you, you've got no leg to stand on because you didn't write it down. So, you know, did you show them an NTUF brush? Did you show them an electric toothbrush? Did you show them into dental brushes? And what size? I always put the size in so that when they come in the next time, I one, ask the patient straight away, what are you using? And if they say they're using an interdental brush, then I say, what color and brand? And then when they don't know the color, they're not using it every day because they would know what color they picked up if they did. But also I can see, because sometimes I'm like, they'll go, oh, I use this color. And I'm like, oh, last time I recommended this. And they'll be like, oh, I was at the supermarket. That's the color I saw. And then you're like, yep, yeah, but it wasn't the same size. And this is why we might not have got the same results because we weren't using the appropriate size for the, the space and things like that. So it's important that we're double checking that and making sure. And then we should be refining OHI every time we see the patient. You know, have they been able to actually understand what we've told them? Have they actually been able to do what they've told them? If they haven't, the only insane person in the room, if you keep giving the exact same instructions every time, is you not the patient. If you're expecting something different but you do the exact same thing every time, you're the insane one in that room. It means that we have to, as a clinician, mix it up. All right, that didn't work last time. Okay, they can't physically do what I asked them or they don't like. Like I had a patient the other day that said they get goosebumps when they use the interdental brush. It gives them like shivers and they don't like the feeling and it makes them like cringe. And I was like, and the patient goes to me, I know that's weird. I was like, you're not the only person that said that to me. Like, you know, weird is I cleaned my teeth with my toenails. This ain't weird, lady. <laughs> <laughs> like, you don't know anything that I've been through in this room. <laughs> Seriously. You will never understand the level of trauma of things people tell us. <laughs> like one lady, I stopped using my electric toothbrush because I didn't like sharing the head with my husband. I was like, mm. oh, like, oh my god yeah this is when like you wish you could see our faces right now because yeah. we both just yeah. like vomited yeah I'm like, oh. like yeah i'm like under no amount of money would i share someone's toothbrush i'd rather get a face washer out and wipe my teeth down than use somebody else's toothbrush that's so disgusting yeah oh um, oh i'm like nauseous yeah so you know really talking to them about and then if they can't do it so like with her i said to her you know, okay, if you really think you can't use the interdental brushes, do I think it's better than what I'm going to recommend? Hell yeah. But guess what? This is better than doing nothing. So I put her on a water irrigator. I think water irrigators are really good adjunctive tools and an interdental brush is better. And when they're combined, even more the bomb. But if they're not going to use something else, it's better than nothing. So I was like, why don't you try a water irrigator? She came back. She's like, I really like it. And because she liked it, she was using it and we were getting better results because she wasn't using the brushes. But if you just keep, you know, pounding the same message and not taking into account the patient's wants and preferences and what they can tolerate, like 
let's remember we're all individuals and we need to be giving individualized care. And just because we find something easy or we tolerate it well, it doesn't mean the person next to us does. Like There is no one size fits all for patient care in any realm. Like I'll tell you something weird about me. I do not like my knees being touched in any circumstance. I hate it. It makes me gag and it gives me goosebumps and I just do not like it. I don't like the front of my knees being touched. I don't like the back of my knees being touched. So like when I go, obviously no one touches my knees at the dentist, just so you know, I don't go to a dodgy dentist. (laughs) (laughs) When I go for a massage, I explicitly say in my massage, do not touch my knees. Like I don't want you to touch them. Because the back of my knees, I find it unbelievably ticklish and I want to kick the person in the head. And then the front of my knees, it makes me like gag. I'm like, I do not like it. It's weird. I know that. But it's an (laughs) involuntary reaction. Like I don't control it. It's just something I hate about my knees being touched. Now, other patients can feel that about certain dental products. You know, and it's just, it's their thing. We've all got our own little idiosyncrasy of something we hate or don't like or can't tolerate. What's your weird thing, Mel? Oh, God. <laughs> There's so many. There's so many. Um, I can't even think because it's so early in the morning, but what is, what, what's my weird thing? Oh, uh, just like certain sound frequencies make me super cringy or just like, like that nails on a chalkboard yeah. kind of thing. When you accidentally do that, like it sends literal shivers like through my body. Like I can't even tolerate it. It's so it's funny that that scalers haven't triggered that in me over all these years, but um, yeah, there's just there's just things that people can't can't handle, and I think that typically we get annoyed at them as practitioners because they're just they're just you know they're making our day more difficult. You know we don't we don't really look at it from a place of serving others. We look at it as like, hey, you're now I have to go out of my way to help you, and you're annoying me. And I think that that's a big shift that our profession needs to kind of self-reflect on and and be mindful of Mm. there's, there's not, you know, flossing is not the answer No, and telling people to do the same thing. Like you said, over and over again is literally the definition of insanity to expect something different. And there's, why are we going to continue to harp on a tool that people have already told us they don't want to use? We already know it's not effective. Yeah. And then expect them to still be achieve success with it. It's ridiculous. So we really have to step back and take a look at, you know, a different approach because why we, people can be successful, just like you said, Tab, with other different approaches and look at yourself when you're talking about oral hygiene instruction, look at yourself more as a coach that you're making suggestions to a patient, let the patient come to the, the, discovery, you know, you could suggest, Hey, these are the the products that I think might work better for you. Let me size you up for interdental brushes. These are the companies you could purchase this through. Let's reevaluate. Let me, let me tighten up your recare. Let's reevaluate in three months. I don't want you to go six. I want you to, I want you back in three and let's see what you can achieve at home with these tools. And if this isn't working, we'll reevaluate next time and see if we can find a better a better protocol for you that fits into your life. And that's the thing. Like when you're coaching from the sideline, rather than instructing and harping, you get so much less buy-in from them. So it's really, you know, looking at it from a different perspective, a new lens and, and make suggestions 
like, yes, they don't know more than we do. They, they don't understand. It's our job to help them understand, but they don't understand what we understand. So we can't have that expectation of them. And we can't come annoyed to the table that they don't floss or brush their teeth right. We should be annoyed at ourselves for yeah. not taking the time to educate them. So the more front end education that you do, especially for a compromised periodontal patient, the better results you're going to get because they're going to understand it better. And then also too, like as they move through treatment, if depending on the stage, depending on how much bone and tissue loss you already had, that's harder and harder for them to manage at home, right? Because now there's there's undercuts, there's recession, there's all sorts of things that are going to trap biofilm and make it more challenging for them. So you know, you can even with somebody who's maybe, you know, in a perio stage one and you're, you're talking to them about their diagnosis and you're going over oral hygiene instruction, you know, I like to use that problem consequence solution approach too and be like, hey, if we work together, this is, this is what I am um, anticipating your result to look like. And then we put you in remission and we don't have a lot of bone and tissue volume loss. And over time, this will be easy for you to maintain. But if we go through this treatment and you're not compliant coming in, you're not compliant with your home care, here's what's going to continue to happen. And that goes back to the prognosis, right? So we can help them understand and flip charts like Tabitha said before are fantastic for this. Here's the progression of disease. Here's what your immune system is trying to do that's causing this, right? Your body is trying to attack the pathogens that are causing your inflammatory response and it's eating the bone and the tissue in the process. Yeah. So like when you really just chunk it down to that and they understand it, now they have a sense of control where how many patients, Tabitha, have you treated over the years where they don't feel like it's controlled? They just have bad teeth or my family has bad teeth, right? So we got to give them that sense of control. Yeah. Oh, a hundred percent. Especially if someone's anxious the need for control becomes even stronger and we already lay them in a vulnerable position we they don't really you know like education is low health literacy is low in this area so they're feeling overwhelmed and and worried and sometimes embarrassed and shameful and all of those things you know um it was quite interesting i was reading some uh research the other day about um orthodontic patients and this is totally off subject because you know i really love to go on a tangent as if you listen to this podcast you know <laughs> you know we, we both do so it's but, not good <laughs> it was quite it was about smile direct and stuff like that and you know because i i remember thinking um why does anybody use this take your own impressions like don't see a dentist orthodontic service it seems dodge and i really thought the number one reason was money like this is cheap by people doing it but there was a reason why some people were doing it was because they were embarrassed, so embarrassed about their mouths and how they looked that it was a way to not be seen and feel judged. So it was a way to do this at home and improve the way they look and feel better about themselves without having to have the embarrassment of going to a dental professional. And I was like, oh, you poor things. But like, so it just made me realize that, you know, we sometimes look in someone's mouth and think, oh, that's fine. But the patient has built it up to be something massive. And they're so, you know, we have those patients where they're like, I want to move this tooth one millimeter. And you're like, what are you talking about? But like you're cray cray. Um, but that patient is fixated on it and it's a big deal to them. And it's how we all have things in our lives that, you know, worry us more than they worry other people. And most of the time um, 
people have probably never noticed what we're worried about before. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Nailed it. Yeah. So back on topic. (laughs) (laughs) We should do an episode just about this whole Smile Direct thing. Yeah. It's been pretty interesting. Yeah, it has. Very interesting. So we've written down our OHI. We've written down our recommendations. We've got our treatment plan written down. But what are we going to do for our treatment plan? Like how are we going to see these patients? And I think we kind of gave it away a little bit in our notes. We should be giving oral hygiene instructions as part of our treatment plan. It should be a part of treatment, a part of review, a part of really, there shouldn't be a step where we're not thinking about OHI. Like that's really important that we're always thinking about that. For Christmas. Sorry, everyone, you just hear the toddler. (laughs) Into the room. Eli's debut. Yeah. And, um, yeah, and so it should be a part of everything that we do because it is such an important part of what we do. Oh, my God. I would argue that that's probably the most important part of what we do. Because if we – I tell my patients all the time, and I've said this before and I will say it again – 80% 80% is what you're going to do at home. 20% is what I do here. Yeah, 100%. So, you know, we have to work as a team in order for this to be successful. Yeah, 100%. And, you know, we can't get that long-term success without the patient doing that at home. And it is really, really important that they do. Definitely. Um, without, what do you think are some of the the biggest barriers that hygienists have with having our patients become compliant and owning their part in their oral hygiene instruct in their oral hygiene and self-care I've, I've started using that term self-care and I even documented that where so self-care regimen is what I write in the chart I think um, it's actually making it a big part of the appointment I think that's a huge yeah. problem is people don't make it that big part of the appointment and that's because they're under the pump with not enough time and not given the appropriate time. And then Mom. I think one of the areas that Mom. people – I'll show you later. Sorry, everyone. It's a problem. The joys of children, everyone. And you can He's so sweet. Paw Patrol is a huge thing in our house. Um, so one of the huge problems is, is like that under the pump time, that not having that time and being expected to do – too much and then the other problem too is is that we spend time doing a lot of education post uh, graduation on clinical skills and a lot of the time we neglect OHI in education and communication and these are things that most people aren't brushing up on and there aren't a lot of courses on the OHI side of things but there are on um, communication, but I just think people put that on the low priority of their list of things to do, and it's unfortunate because I think they're really important. Yes, yes. I, I, you nailed it because it's you really need to have, as a clinician, so many tools in your oral hygiene toolbox so that you can be able to pivot for every patient and then pivot not only like each individual patient, but then with the individual patient be able to pivot along their journey as well. So like you were saying, when you recommend one thing and the patient comes back and says, I can't use it, I'm having issues using it, no problem. Let's try something different. So that's something that, you know, as providers, we should constantly be researching and, and looking for new products and testing things on our own 
too, because how do you how do you teach someone how to use something if you haven't actually tried it yourself uh-huh. and seen if it's worked, right? And that's one thing that you know from this show that Tabitha and I have made a vow about when we continue to stand strong on this, that we will never ever on the podium, on this podcast, in any kind of education, speak to something that we haven't tried and tested ourselves and believe in before we share it with our community. So you should have the same approach with your patients as well, because at the end of the day, when you're disingenuine, people feel that people know it. But when you have, when you're speaking from a place of experience and you can say, try this, this has worked or, you know, this, here's the product I asked, let's see, why isn't it working? Well, they're using it incorrectly. So, but if you haven't actually done it, how do you know if to identify that? So there's so much, you've got to just really like buckle down and walk your talk and get in there. And if there is a time where a patient brings something up to you and you don't know something or you're not aware of something, that's okay too. We're human beings. So I mean, it's happened to me, Tab, I'm sure it's happened to you where a patient brings something up and you're just, my response is, you know what? I'm not aware of this product. Thank you so much for bringing it to my attention. Let me do some research. Let me have your email address and I will circle back and I will come back to you when I have more information that I can provide you. That happens to me all the time. And I think there's no drama in saying, I don't know. Do you want to know the most embarrassing one that I had to say? I, I wasn't sure and didn't know the answer. I would love to know. A patient um, asked me, it, this is explicit, everyone. So if you're um, fragile, I apologize. <laughs> Earmuffs the baby. Um, he's left the room, everyone. Thank God. Okay. He found a Christmas present and ran off with it. Um, oh, well, good dig. Yeah. He, um, the, the, the female patient said to me um, that she'd like to know what was the best mouth rinse that I would recommend post-oral sex. Oh, lovely. But she worded it in a much more crude way and I was like cringing and I was like, I don't know. I haven't read any studies on this because I was so embarrassed. I didn't know what to do and I just had gone so red and I was just feeling so like not really knowing what to do that I just was like, had an, you know, it gets worse. She has an implant. <laughs> it gets worse. And she was like, I don't want any of it to get stuck around my implant. And I was like, oh. And then I was a total bitch because I actually know the specialist that placed it and I'm friends with her and I said, you should ask your specialist that one. (laughs) Boom, out of my room. And then I text my friend and was like, look forward to this next appointment. (laughs) Oh, my God. A, my perverted mind just thought of so many things that I will not say publicly. And B... I'm just dead. That's insane. I just will uh, also let you know she was 65. Oh, my (laughs) God. You made it even worse. (laughs) I was so red. And later that night, the nurse had obviously told everyone in the back room about how red I'd gone, blah, blah. And then the dentist pulls me aside and he goes, I hear you had a really interesting patient. And I was like, oh, my God, I was mortified. And he goes, I'd just like to know how often she wants to use the mouth rinse. I was like, go away. Oh, God. you not to click down and ask more questions and I was like I did not want to know (laughs) 
T M I. Thank you. But you know what? A, I'm going to commend you for creating an environment where a person feels that safe that they can have that conversation. I've got to get Mina. <laughs> oh, shit. Oh, they That's got to be a follow up episode. What is the best mouthwash? They laugh. Patients tell me the weirdest things all the time and they really yes. like divulge stuff to me. And they're like, why do they tell yes. me this stuff? And I'm like, I'm too nice. It needs to stop. <laughs> yes. Yes. You work so hard to create this like warm, welcoming, safe space because we know how vulnerable it is. And then it just opens Pandora's box for a whole bunch of other shit. There's a course I actually want to do getting off topic again, everybody. It's called the Accidental Counselor. Oh, and I love that. It's all like people in professions like ours, like not just health, but you know, hairdressers really cop this a lot as well and yes but like where you kind of get in someone's personal space and spend a significant amount of time with them patients can really um or clients can unload a lot of information and um it's definitely a course that I'm really interested in doing I've just been trying to line it up with my schedule because I feel like sometimes patients unload really heavy information to you as well um especially because I talk to patients a lot about like if I'm looking in their mouth and I'm thinking plaque control is pretty good but like disease is progressing and there's nothing in their medical history that's hitting me before I'll send them for blood tests I'll ask them emotionally how do you feel and what are your stress levels like and Mm -hmm. then a lot of the time they'll divulge horrible information to you about this what's what is the main stressor in their life and then they will sometimes break down crying you know they might say Mm -hmm. my mom died last week and then you're like I'm so sorry and um, you know, and in some cases I will say to people, you know, I think you should see a counselor or a psychologist or something like that. But definitely sometimes the conversations can be really heavy and knowing how to navigate that really well and making sure I'm improving in that. And then I'm hoping they also give tips for how we feel afterwards because sometimes you can feel really heavy post those conversations yeah. and I can go home feeling a bit heavy as well. So how I, uh, you know, separate myself from that emotion and that feeling in that room as well. I think, you know, I really am interested in doing more study in that area, but I definitely feel that it's a part of the job that doesn't get spoken about when we're students. And oh, God, no. yeah. we can sometimes get into private practice or, or government practice, wherever you are, but when you're, you're a graduated clinician, you're seeing patients, we kind of find out the hard way when the first time that situation happens. Yeah, oh God. Yeah. Like, and then have a heavy conversation and no one's prepared me of how to communicate with this. Exactly. And I think what you said too is so important because um, some people are empathetic and they just like, that's me. I, I empathize with people and I carry their burden with me. And it took me a really long time to learn how to not to take on other people's energy like that. And, and, you know, I just am a people pleaser by nature and I want to serve others. And when someone comes to me with some heavy situation like that, I sometimes you can help them, but you just need to be there for them in that moment and show them kindness, compassion, and support. And you know, what, what you just said, Tabitha is so important because let's say you have a 10 minute car ride home from a day like that. That's not enough time to decompress, right. Or, or have some tools that you could do some maybe kind of like conscious meditative tools to help you decompress of what you've had you know, laid on you that day or what you had to endure that day. And uh, that's, that's, I'm, I'm excited for that. Cause that's a definitely something that's necessary. Yeah. I think we should definitely get someone on the podcast to talk about that. How do we separate work and life and decompress and how do we keep that 
um, mindfulness and, and mental health for ourselves as clinicians. Um, and it's definitely an area I think, yeah, we, we all could do with more training in and more helping to make sure that we're mentally looking ourselves up because we have a stressful job. Like one of my friends messaged me this week and said she's having a really crappy week because in Australia, um, their health funds, they click over at the end of each year. So you lose your benefits. So everyone wants to use their benefits before December 31st, but they want to do it right now, two weeks before, and they want to get in and they're cranky and they're stressed about money and it's the end of the year. And, you know, a lot of people have stresses around this time of the year because there's missing people they love or they don't maybe don't have the family that they want. And so people are just on edge, I find. And, you know, people are walking in and saying to her, I hate the dentist. I don't want to be here. And she's just like, I've had enough of the negativity that's coming into my room all day. Like, because when I leave at the end of the day, I'm feeling that negativity. And so, yeah, I think coping mechanisms of how you separate. And some of that comes with age of how long you've been a clinician. Like, so I do remember as a baby hygienist, this stuff rocked me a lot more than it rocks me now. You know, sometimes now, you know, sometimes you do, I definitely have days where I think, oh, God, all right, I'm sick of everyone saying that or I'm sick of the negative. Because I was talking about this the other day. I feel like patients come in waves. I'll have a day where everyone's a gagger. I'll have a day where everyone opens their mouth like a cat's bum. I'll have a day where everyone needs to spit all day. I'll have a day like, and then you'll have that Of macroglossia. Yeah, you'll have a day where everyone <laughs> is in a mood. And yes. To, but, you know, I just find, like I had a day a little while ago, I had eight patients and seven of them cried. And oh. but I told my boss, he's like, what did you do to them? And I'm like, no, they cried before they got in the chair. Like, and I didn't <laughs> met them before. And I said, but like at the end of that day, I was emotionally spent. Yes. I had had to calm, like help calm. And then I had to sit there and be a counselor. And then I had to really manage the patient and their emotions so well through the appointment. By the end of each hour that day, I was like, God, there can't be another one. And then another one would just walk in. And I was like, oh, my God. Like, at the end of the day, I was like, I think I'm going to cry. <laughs> because I just am so emotionally exhausted from giving so much to myself to every patient that I was like, I'm spent. And now I've got to go home and cook dinner and, and be like another emotional person for these little like terrorists that are running around my house as well (laughs) (laughs) yeah that's that's definitely the challenging part so it's like and we're we're on every you know if you're seeing a patient every hour you're on on the hour every hour resetting and it's it is sometimes it's more draining other days than than not and it's it's a skill set that needs to be learned refined and um developed over time. It's not easy. It's definitely not easy. Um, and I agree with you how I used to respond to certain patients in the beginning. Like I thought I needed to have all the answers and fix it when I was a baby hygienist. Now I know much better that I don't have to have all the answers. And sometimes people don't want you to have an answer. They just, like I said, they want you to sit in the mud with them for a second, recognize how they feel, not have a solution for them and, and give them a big hug and say, I'm here for you. You know, like, that's it. People just want a vent. They don't want a solution. A solution is annoying. They're like, no, I'm not dumb. I know how to, I know the solution. I just, well, there is no solution. So you can't say anything like, you know, yeah. there is no solution to grief. It's just listen and move on. Like, mm-hmm. do you mean? like that's all you can do. So right. I think that it's, um, yeah, these are skills we learn and I definitely get thicker skin now, you know, like when someone walks in and is like, I hate being here. I don't take it personally. 
Right, right. I'm like, yes. you know, I usually will say, you're part of the majority, don't worry. Or I actually yeah. sometimes say, don't worry, I won't take that personally. And then yeah. they say, yeah, well, no, it's not good. you, it's the situation. I'm like, yeah, I know. Right. I said, but right. it kind of gets said to us all day. Like, do you know what I mean? And I will, but yeah. I will just go, it's fine. I know it's not me. You know, they're not saying I hate you. They're saying I hate the vulnerability. I hate this. And a lot of the times I will say something like, the era of dentistry you've been to was pretty horrific because those older patients, it was horrific. There it was. was no other way to describe it. These people had horrific dentistry. And so I say to them, you have been through an era of dentistry that wasn't that nice. It's not really surprising you have anxiety about attending now. And I think right. it makes them feel really nice to feel validated that because they come in going, I know it's silly. And I'm like, it's not silly. You had a bad experience. This is natural to be fearful and not want to have that again. That's a natural, you know, anything that bad happens to you, you naturally don't want to do it again. That is normal. Right. Right. Definitely. Yeah. So we got, when we, yeah, we kind of like digressed. So we might have to do part That's what three. we do though. <laughs> I, I think that's what our audience expects of us and they love us for it. I hope. <laughs> All right, so part three will have to come guys. Um. Yeah. Yeah. Cause what I would love to dig into also in the next episode on this topic is the ways that we, you know, we, we did talk about periodontal charting and stuff, but like our, the strategies and the techniques that we use to make the patient part of that process yeah. so that they have an understanding as to what's going on. And it transfers the power of owning the patient's disease. We don't own the disease, right? Because how many times have you had over your professional career where a patient's like, my mouth feels fine. Nothing bothered me until you poked me with that thing. And now I'm bleeding because you poked me, right? So that's like, that's the terrible mindset shift that, that we have to now navigate. But Tabitha and I both use technologies and strategies that make the patient part of the process. And before you've even completed your charting, they already have an understanding as to what's going on and that this is not, I don't qualify for a cleaning yeah. as my air quoting, as I'm saying that you can't see me, but I, they already know they're not going to qualify for, you know, that, that thing that they thought they were coming in for that doesn't meet their needs because they're not healthy. Yeah. So I definitely want to dig into that next time. A hundred percent. And yeah, and I think we can definitely, um, in another episode as well, pull apart those treatment guidelines that we've got from the European Federation of Periodontology about the different steps and how we would go through treatment planning those perio patients and things that have evidence to support them, things that don't have evidence to support them and, um, you know, recommendations that we can make for treatment. I think that would be amazing because here in the U.S., like the majority doesn't even know that the EFP had a new update to that. So I think that that would be incredible to really just kind of break that down and share that information. Yeah. Awesome. Have a great night. Fantastic. I'm going to go find the terrorist and see where he's gone with the Christmas present and uh, make sure he goes back to bed. They love and taking a little... advantage of when I'm recording a podcast. Um, and um, if, we, if this comes out before the end of year, have a great end of year, people. And if it doesn't, happy new year. <laughs> <laughs> like I said before, it's a 50, 50 shot. So, yeah. um, but most of all, we thank you for your patience with us and sticking it out with us. And, uh, 2024, 
you're going to have more of this dynamic duo and amazing people coming in and sharing their genius with us too. So thank you for being here with us. And until next time, keep on disrupting. Bye. Hey, thank you again so much for tuning into the Disrupting Dentistry podcast. We love to hear from you viewers and we love that you join us for our episodes. Please make sure to subscribe wherever you listen to your podcasts. And leave us a review. We love reading reviews from all over the world. It's one of the things that actually makes all the hard work feel really worth it when we get to see which episodes you're enjoying or some feedback that you give. So leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or write something on our Facebook or our Instagram page. We'd love to hear from you. And thanks so much for listening. Keep on disrupting.